All right. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to this week's news from the drug war front. My name is Jeff, and my co-presenter. Good to see you again, Mess. After I was cook last week. Hey, how Jeffrey. are you, Marion? Good morning, everybody. It's a beautiful day. Welcome back, Jeffrey. It's so good to have you back on air with me, especially on such a lovely day. It's good to be back. Ah, uh, good. I hope you're not feeling unwell anymore. No, slowly get in there. Good, um, good. Yeah, yep. I don't, day don't by day, like it when you're not well. Thank you, Dave, for look for sitting in for Jeffrey. You're very kind of him and well organised. Um, dialogue we had last week. No, Everything Dave's was set up and yeah, he was well. And we've got a story about him this week too. We have a local story that yeah, actually features Dave. It actually relates to uh, Dave's program, so that's really useful. And actually uh, from the ABC website and has a, a very good picture of Dave as well. It, uh, yeah, well we'd show you the picture, but you know what radio is. <laughs> yeah, you'll just have to take our <laughs> word You'll just have it. to pretend. Um, so tomorrow's World AIDS Day, Marion. Indeed it is, and I think something that we need to remember, keep well and truly in mind, because without World AIDS Day, uh, peer education organisations for drug users in particular would not exist, um, as well as those for uh, men who have sex with men or, you know, pan, if you like, you know, pan, pansexual, mm -hmm. uh, pansexually oriented people. But World AIDS Day, December the 1st, every year, um, and it's really relevant, particularly relevant this year, because it seems to be that this um, new Omicron version of COVID originated in South America, South, South Africa. Africa, sorry. Oh, duh, how stupid. But anyway, it uh, originated in South Africa because... A, uh, a man who was uh, HIV positive, or actually had AIDS, I think, was infected with COVID, but I think he didn't feel it, but was infected for so long that the nature of the virus changed and became this new Omicron version. Wow. Yeah, so that. it's really quite... Um, well, that's the theory behind it that I've been hearing on yeah. the news, Jeffrey. So... I take don't take it as gospel, but it sounds like a fairly reasonable assumption. But it reminds us that AIDS is not over. No, we haven't got a no cure, cure for it. No, uh, it's a virus, and unlike hepatitis C, which we have managed to cure, um, AIDS is still around and still infecting people. And Africa, in fact, is uh, the major seat of the you know the large, enormous numbers of yeah. in people infected with HIV. And has been for a long time. Has been for a long time and was before we really, you know, started um, started playing, I guess, with the multi-antiretrovirals, uh, multi I think they're called. And that's the antiretrovirals, the ones that I always direct get wrong, yes, <laughs> rather than direct-acting antivirals. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of technical stuff, isn't there? Indeed. In but anyway, it's just important that we remember and I guess pay tribute to um, those from, you know, who have passed from um, HIV and AIDS-related conditions um, and who continue to live and thrive and survive with HIV and AIDS. Um, we respect you and we have um, many people of our 
of uh, our, our peers around the world who are infected with AIDS, HIV. Oh, look, in the early days, Marion, it was that's it was where much it came sentence, from. Wasn't yes, it? that was where it was identified, Jeffrey. Yeah. In fact, in uh, New York, it, it was a, around before that, but it was actually Neil Blewett, who was the Minister for Health at mm -hmm. the time, was his secretary, Bill Botel, who sent a cable back to Australia. And this is not just gossip, this is me knowing at the time, because I'm so old, knowing what was happening at the time. And Bill Votel sent a cable back to Australia saying, there is this, there is this virus that 60% of uh, intravenous drug users, they called at that time, and it was, I think it was called, um, what was it called? Oh. Hum yeah, anyway, HIV was human immunodeficiency virus, but it actually had another name, and in intravenous drug users is what um, IDUs were called in those days. Um, and But that was how we got funded in the first place, Jeff. You well, know, it was through because we collaborated with men who had sex with men, um, people who uh, had received blood products, yeah, that were, hadn't been tested at mm -hmm. that stage because 1984 was when they first declared the blood supply clean. Um, sex workers um, and people who had unsafe sex generally, but we just were not uh, organised, if you like, into any kind of uh, lobby group. So we networked as uh, as peers or people dealing with the other um, drug users or dealing with people who had unsafe sex one way or another and set up organisations that did what is now called peer education. Yeah. Um, and harm reduction became came out of that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So no. it's really important that we keep a note of that. It's important to remember the history and also that that was a template of collaboration. That's right. Yeah. Achieved incredible results, you know, to keep um, showed the government that, in fact, people who were on the same level as other people were, as as the people who were receiving the education, if it's like a doctor will educate a doctor yeah. and they will take notice better than, um, say, someone like me talking to a group of doctors. They will think it's interesting but not necessarily relevant to them. Yeah. But if I am talking to uh, a drug user, a different level of education altogether. There is no power difference, yeah? yeah. The imbalance is not there. Yeah. So, and we find when we look at, for instance, what the um, AFP put out, they put out education for drug users and the rubbish that's yeah, it involved in it. Last week we were talking about it left, right and centre because of the nature of the education campaigns, very paternalistic and it's rubbish. Yeah, sensationalist not true. propaganda. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it has been like that forever. If you know, for 60 years, Jeffrey, yep. we've been doing through this, and going through this, and it's still the same. One of the reasons why it's so hard to... Um educate the general community about the failure of prohibition. It's That's not... right, it's because they have been listening to propaganda for so long that they've internalised it, they yep. believe it. They believe it. Implicitly yeah. comes from the government, must be true. Yeah. Although, you know, we have problems with this government, not, not so many people are saying <laughs> must be true, they're more point. likely to be saying, well, not sure whether this is true. All anyway. Right. For listeners who aren't familiar with the show, um, use on the drug war front is brought to you by Karma, the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimisation and Advocacy, which is a peer-based community-controlled drug user organisation. 
with over two decades serving the ACT. And uh, as you probably no doubt aware from uh, our opening discussion, we try to report on the damage done by the global policy of prohibition of certain drugs that began when the 1961 United Nations Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs was ratified, and there are two uh, sister conventions that came later. But sadly, these policies or these um, con conventions remain largely unchanged. Um, we'd like to acknowledge the efforts of peers and activists who've contributed to the struggle against the war on people who use drugs. And essentially, yeah, the show aims to not only provide news, but to encourage debate and inform and educate listeners about the failure of prohibition. Mm, Karma, who produces this show, provides a wide range of services. Um, regular listeners will understand and know this, but such as client advocacy, peer treatment support, education, creative arts, mentoring and referrals. The connection is Karma's peer-based drug and alcohol service for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander clients. In both services, or both services are located in the church's centres, um, Belconnen at Shop 17, Level 154, Benjamin Way. The drop-in is open again and the hours are 10am to 4pm, Monday to Friday. The office phone number is 6253-3643. I'll tell you that again, 6253-3643. So Karma can assist people with a wide range of issues, but they include opioid maintenance treatment, that's methadone, buprenorphine, and more recently the long-acting injectable forms of buprenorphine like buvital and sublocade, treatment for hepatitis C, the impact of stigma and discrimination, the availability of detox and rehab services, um, and in fact all issues faced by people adversely impacted by prohibition and the war on people who use drugs. Exactly. Yeah, uh, just a, a quick um, mention that we had the uh, Karma AGM yesterday. Um, That's right. Actually yes. downstairs from where we are here. Indeed. Um, in the, the, the big space on the ground yeah. floor. The first AGM, yeah. Second. Well, second actually because the first, yeah, that's first right. First one was in Havelock House. It's a first annual one. Do you know what I mean? This is our first year of op being open and having had a, a, an AGM. So we had one to start with, which kicked us off. Yep. And now we've been open for a year formally. Yep as an incorporated organisation. Yeah, look, it was, it was good. Um, you know you know what AGM's like, you have to go through certain set uh, procedures, but um, Chris's executive director's report covered um, like some of the issues that we've worked on this year, like the submission to the Drugs of Dependence Bill that's um, been put before the ACT Legislative Assembly, which um, we uh, support wholeheartedly. Indeed. Um, Update about the connection service, uh, the naloxone program, which we've got that story on uh, from the ABC website about yep. uh, the origins and future progress of Karma's naloxone program. The peer treatment support program, it's been almost three years since Karma started that, which provides ongoing support for peers in the ACT to access services, interact um, with wider services under the social determinants of health model. Um, so that's and became really obvious when uh, during COVID, during the lockdown, when really the radio show was the connection uh, or made the connection between users and Karma and allowed people to interact with Karma via the radio show, if you like, or by, via the, our advertising of services and where they were available and how. Absolutely. In fact, that very point is in uh, Chris's report uh, in under the... Uh, 
COVID-19 and 2021 lockdown um, section, just uh, how important it was to um, uh, maintain a connection uh, with a captive audience in lockdown, Indeed, essentially. Yeah. Um, and uh, various partnerships with Directions Health, Hepatitis ACT, Women's Harm Reduction International Network. Uh, we partnered with, uh, with them on the Orange the World 16 Days of Action campaign. That's on at the moment, isn't it? It's on it again. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's on again. Uh, Interchange Health Cooperative, um, Karma providing brokerage um, for membership uh, of the Interchange Health Cooperative, and also worked with YWCA, Ted Knox. Um, it's actually pretty impressive, um, the range of um, achievements. Yes, that indeed. Karma yeah, managed very to proud of what Karma's managed to achieve over the last, well, since it's become incorporated, even before that, but since it's become incorporated now has a report that makes it clear just how far karma reaches into the community, yeah? Yeah, and I In think collaboration with a lot of organisations. Bronwyn from Directions made that point, just how um, much higher karma is as an integral part now of the, the sector and yeah, um, it's collaborating with so many um, other organisations and kicking a lot of goals. Look, let's go to a song and then we'll get into the, um, the story you mentioned about Dave. This is uh, Paul Kelly from St Kilda to King's Cross. All right, of course, that was not Paul Kelly. He's oh, on uh, was split number end. two, not the first yeah. one. So um, anyway. Oh, good to have song. you back, Jeff. Yeah. Well, <laughs> history never repeats except like hell. I'll make a mistake uh, <laughs> on one of the CDs. Uh, look, just quickly um, mention the contents of this news from the Drug War Front broadcast do not necessarily reflect the views and or policies of karma. Karma does not c condemn, but nor does it uh, not condone, sorry, nor condemn drug use and does not promote illegal activity. Karma recognises that drug use happens, and as such, Karma focuses on harm reduction messages, drug treatment support services, advocacy and community development. Karma seeks to reduce the harms associated with drug use as well as the harms associated with the criminalisation of drug use through the provision of empowering programs that concentrate on community development, person-centred holistic health care and equity of health service delivery for all people. And, uh... Okay, as promised. This piece is titled, An Opioid Reversal Program Has Saved Dozens of Canberrans. Now, and this the, was from the ABC, ABC News website. Yes, yeah? the National I'm Broadcaster. Very proud of it. Now there are calls to roll it out to families across Australia by Antoinette Radford, posted Friday 26th of uh, November 2021, and updated uh, later in the same day. David Baxter has witnessed the effects of overdose firsthand. Quote, I was living in a share house with a guy whose girlfriend was a dealer. We had a lot of people coming around the place using heroin and using ice around the house, he said. There were quite a few occasions that I had to save people. Mr Baxter used drugs for much of his adult life and since breaking his own addiction has dedicated his career to helping loved ones of drug, of drug users. Mr Baxter is the lead trainer for the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimisation and Advocacy, Karma, Karma's naloxone program. The program is funded by the ACT government and supplies the family and friends of opioid drug users with the rapid reversal medication, naloxone, which anyone who's heard our show will know, know about it, promote yeah. all the time. Naloxone works by blocking receptors that the opioids would otherwise attach to. It was first trialled in the ACT back in 2012 when the government funded Karma to uh, do a trial with 200 people who were given training and kits with the medication. And back then it was the intramuscular uh, version That's right, of naloxone. Yeah. When, uh, within the first six months of the program, up to 40 people said they'd used their kits. And in the 12 months to June 2021, more than 320 Canberrans were given take-home naloxone. And in yesterday's AGM, I think the figure was over 1,000 kits had been given out between us and Directions in the last yeah. financial year, which is 
And it's so useful, Jeffrey. It's just so good. I mean, I'm so proud of it and to be part of it, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, how else can... Where else can you have means and no, knowledge to say... No, look, we think that it should be everywhere. Everyone should have access to it or should be given it for free. It doesn't matter yeah. whether you think you know a drug user or not. It's uh, quite easy to... It doesn't do anything but reverse opioid overdose, so can't do any harm to anybody no. who is... Um, Otherwise, it, who is not opioid overdosed, yeah? And anyway, now to you let you continue. You don't have to use um, any syringes. It's no, just a, no, a nasal no, spray. No, it's just a nasal spray these days. There's no nothing, in, um, no injection, nothing, yeah? Anyone can do it. Yep. Uh, new research released by the Burnett Institute last week found that making the reversal medication freely available across Australia and free of charge would save hundreds of lives. It found that most opioid deaths in Australia actually involve prescription opioids used by 3 million Australians. The study found that scaling up the take-home naloxone program to include other states and reaching 90% of people who were prescribed medium and high-strength opioids could save over 650 lives. Indeed. In Canberra, more than 70 people presented to Canberra Hospital for opioid-related overdoses last year, and more than 50 people had presented to October to up to October this year. Mr Baxter, that's our Dave who was on last week, I might add, said that there was a high demand for people to join the program he runs, but attendees were predominantly from the north of Canberra. Quote, one of the large problem one of the problems with Canberra not having all that large of a population, but spread out over a large area, we have a lot more clients from the inner north and Belconnen than we do from Western Creek and Tugranong, for instance, he said. Actually, getting people to come along is a real problem. Even if the demand is there, getting the information out there is quite difficult, he said. According to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, 99.5% of drug-induced deaths involved an opioid drug in 2019. Wow. That's, yeah, it's high, isn't yeah, it? But is Mr high. Baxter said it was not just heroin users dying from overdose. More people die from pharmaceuticals that they've obtained leg legitimately than from heroin that they've got from the black market in Australia, he said. For Tony Trimmingham, or the next heading is, it's often at home where people find them overdosed. Tony Trimmingham, the CEO and founder of drug, uh, Family Drug Support Australia, the Naloxone program is a, way to, a welcome way to empower loved ones of drug users. Mr Trimmingham lost his son, Damien, to heroin overdose and has since dedicated his life to helping others in a similar situation. Quote, the fact that it's now being distributed throughout Australia and particularly now in the ACT, I'm really in favour of it, he said. In favour of it, he said. He said many family members felt helpless when they had a loved one experiencing addiction and educating families families could help prevent overdose-related deaths. Quoted as saying, a lot of people use drugs at home, and it's often at home, particularly in the ACT. I'm saying that, that's not in the article. Well, it, it's more of a home... It, well, Canberra's like that, yeah. yeah? You go home to use as a rule, uh, particularly if you don't... Often if you don't live with your family, but even living with your family, go into your room and use by yourself. I mean, I'm not a Canberran, but I never got a sense that there was an equivalent to, like, Sydney's no, King's Cross or No, there's Fitzroy no street, street scene as such, no, yeah. yeah. Um, 
a lot of people use drugs at home and it's often at home where people find them overdosed or unconscious and if they've got naloxone on hand then there's a very good chance that the person will be saved he said the one thing that families fear most uh, when someone's using opiates is that they're going to die from an overdose it's a great reassurance knowing that you've got an antidote there that's relatively simple to use ANU Associate Professor Anna Olson also echoed these sentiments. She said that other states in Australia with naloxone programs focused on opioid users rather than the friends and families of users and commended the focus taken by Karma. Uh, she's quoted as saying the inclusion of family members can be really useful and empowering to both the person and their family members. And she she's said. absolutely right. Absolutely. And in fact, we, I would go even further and say just focus on the community. Yeah. Yeah, the wider community. Don't target people who think they know a drug user because many people don't think they know drug users, but they do. And we've that's been shown time and time again, Jeffrey, hasn't it? And lots of people come out of rehab and or... Are using opioids for yep. other reasons, yep. like prescribed ones, but do not know that the combination of some of the, the drugs that they are taking will actually lead to an overdose, an opioid overdose, or an overdose anyway. And the opioid part of it can be relieved just by the nasal inhalant of naloxone. It should be given by doctors with any absolutely uh, and train, yes, train the family especially with a prescription i agree yeah yep i'll just give a quick update to that from chris's report um where he said during 2020 and 2021 karma's naloxone program went from strength to strength with naloxone training through needle and syringe programs seeing 608 naloxone kits given out to the community from july 2020 to june 2021 thanks must be given to directions health service and hep act for partnering with karma to provide this life-saving service uh, additionally, Karma's long-form training, which is uh, about an hour-long training involving detailed information about rescue breathing, recovery position, overdose signs, yep. etc., trained 165 people with 171 kits distributed. Um, and the brief intervention program completed 172 brief interventions with 246 kits distributed. Additionally, Karma and Loxone workers trained 44 alcohol and other drug staff Yep. and over 100 nurses at the University of Canberra Nursing Society, which I think is a very important development. It is, indeed. Because they don't get that in their traditional no. training. And, Geoffrey, I always carry two of those uh, naloxone puffers with yeah. me, one to give to somebody else if needed and one to keep for myself so that I can use it for other people if required. But so I always make sure I've got two on me. I just think that's important to note. It's important if you know how to reverse an overdose by using naloxone, then teach somebody else. Yeah? Absolutely. Include yep. other people in your knowledge. Look, it's a no-brainer, Marion, isn't it? It's, you um, would think so, yeah. It's a nasal spray. Yeah, it can't it, do how, any damage. And it doesn't hurt anybody. No. It's not going to do anything other than reverse the effects of opioid overdose. That's all it does. Yeah, and it does it, does it well. It does it well. And, and quickly. And quickly, yeah. And, of course, we've had full support from ACT Ambulance from the get-go right. as well. That's right, and if you're on triple O to the ambulance at the same time and you, they don't require to have an ambulance sent out because the, the overdose is not um, as severe and can be immediately reversed, then they 
it saves him a huge amount of money by not having, what is it, $500, $700 these days to call out an ambulance? I'm sure it's not cheap. Yeah. It is not cheap. It's not cheap to the system. I, I, and naloxone um, can do the same job in, you know, five minutes that an ambulance would take three quarters of an hour to do. And it's the same medication being used? Same medication that they're going to use, just it's supervised by by professionals, yeah. that's all. But definitely one of the things I think Karma can genuinely feel proud particularly of. Yeah. proud of. Yeah. Um, and so congratulate Dave and, and Karma for yeah. actually... Yeah, being and, innovators in that area. And Dave's assistant, Damien. Let's not forget oh, Damo. Oh, don't forget Damo. <laughs> never forget Damo. Sorry, no. mate. would never forget you for a minute. But, no, very nice to see that story on the ABC website. And Absolutely. Recognition of the importance of um, what Karma have managed to achieve and uh, the ongoing expansion of naloxone and its potential and reality of saving lives. Absolutely. And what price can you put on that, Mary? No. A life is worth a million dollars. And you've administered naloxone on many occasions. I have it myself, yes, absolutely. So, yeah. All right, well, we're coming up to the news, so um, we will uh, have a break for that, and then we'll come back with some other hopefully interesting stories. Yep. So stay tuned after the news to News from the Drug War Front with Jeff and Marion. Here's the news. All right, welcome back to this week's News from the Drug War Front on uh, 2XFM, People Powered Radio. And uh, just while I'm mentioning 2XX, um, I'd like to thank them for their support. Um, this show has been going to air on 2XX for uh, around about 15 years or thereabouts, and uh, we very much appreciate the support from 2XX. So if you like our show or any of the other wonderful shows that are produced by volunteers, seriously consider becoming a financial supporter of 2XX, or if you've got a few spare free hours, um, come and do some volunteer work. I'm sure it'd be much appreciated. Um, got a very disappointing piece um, from New South Wales. Um, pill testing bill meets very tough opposition in the New South Wales Parliament. It's by Anton Nilsson from uh, news.com.au, November 25. Uh, a woman whose teenage daughter died after taking drugs at the music festival has made an impassioned, fresh plea to New South Wales politicians. The mother of a 19-year-old woman who died after taking ecstasy at a Sydney music festival says pill testing could have saved her life, but laws that would allow expert pill testers to apply for a government licence are sadly doomed to fail. Greens MP Kate Fairman, who has admitted to taking MDMA, also known as ecstasy, in the past, introduced the legislation to New South Wales Parliament uh, Wednesday week ago. When people have more information about potential harmful substances, they're far more likely to engage in less risky behaviour, she said. Importantly, pill testing services have also been used to alert the public about potentially deadly substances in circulation. But the government and the opposition have both said that they would reject the bill. Jenny Ross King, whose 19-year-old daughter Alex, um, died after taking MDMA at the FOMO festival at Parramatta, in January 2019, said politicians should consider allowing pill testing. She said the laws would give people thinking about doing drugs access to credible information about the substances from experts. And she's quoted as saying, I lost my Alex, but had this been in place, it's quite possible it may have saved her life. What would it mean to other families, to other young people? Well, it would mean possibly they wouldn't be in the position that I am in now. Ms Ross King contacted New South Wales uh, Premier Dominic, Dominic Perrottet to make her case. 
Mr. Perrottet's predecessor, Gladys Berejiklian, was a fierce opponent of pill testing, even though a coronial inquest recommended implementing, implementing the practice. Liberal Member of Parliament Scott Farlow said the government would oppose the bill because testing pills would give prospective users the false impression that drugs are safe. There is no safe level of illicit drug consumption, Mr Farlow told Parliament, and there's a real danger that pill testing will provide a false sense of security that doesn't reflect the complexity of the situation. Labor MP John Graham said the opposition would also vote against it because the bill went, quote, too far. He said the opposition supported a limited trial of pill testing at festivals, but not a broader licensing regime. It just goes beyond where the opposition is as we move to tackle these issues, Mr Graham said. That's uh, very disappointing, Marion. I mean, I guess it shouldn't be surprised the Liberals would be against it, but oh, yeah. I would have thought Labor might have a more progressive... I, uh, look, I don't know why, Geoffrey, but it seems to be... It's too personal an issue, unfortunately, for it to be taken up as a... Look, it, the Greens have a policy related to drug use, um, which is less, um, let's say, less damning, okay, than uh, the Liberal or Labor parties. And it really worries me that because of the the personal um, impact, not only of drug use, but of alcohol use, that taking on a policy that um, <clears throat> advocates legal availability of yet another intoxicant, um, as far as I... This is my own personal view. I just think that they... People get very frightened of it, yeah? They see what drugs do. They, either it's their own personal drug use or a member of their family. I also think yeah? they're scared of the backlash from mainstream media. Should they actually express an opinion? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, we have a, you know, locally we have um, a, a member who's prepared to put up a bill, but it's his own bill. It's not a party yeah, bill. A private member bill. A yeah. private member's bill. And it's like, um, I guess, in a lot of ways, it's like um, uh, you know, dying with dignity. You know, people do not want to be seen to be advocating something that um, doesn't want to take it on as a policy. If you like, it becomes a very personal thing, a very intimate thing. Well, it takes courage to go against. Um... And if there are two things, Jeffrey, that are that are really, I think, are really um, intimate um, and very personal. It's how you like your drugs, if you like them, and how you like your sex. Mm -hmm. right? And I think that if you come up with policies related to either of those issues, they have to be personal ones because they're very rarely adopted by, by parties. Although, you know, against that there is the um, same-sex marriage bill which, uh, but again, that was a personal selection. Yeah, that was a conscience vote Took a on long the floor time of to the get house. Yeah. Very long time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but it's a uh, it's a real worry. This pill testing thing in particular, where it, you know, Gladys Berejiklian asked for a report, yeah. got 
recommendations and ignored every one of them. Oh, ignored the report completely. Worse than that, rejected it. Yes, out of hand. yeah, and just have. It's like it never happened. Yeah. No, look, even worse for me, Marion, is the uh, lack of courage to even have a public debate and put your cards on the table, you know? Like, isn't that the, the role of a Member of Parliament is to deal with difficult issues, you know? Have well, inquiries, <laughs> get reports, have a debate? That's the huge issue, isn't it? It's actually how personally... How much... How far are you prepared to invest yourself in... Um, not just party politics, but popular politics, if you like. Uh, how can you stand up and be counted as a person who is in favour of going against 60 years now of um, the propaganda that has been, as I say, internalised by the majority of society? Um, really, as peer educators, we are still on the outer in yep. a lot of ways. Absolutely. And funded, um, in all, funded basically because of the illnesses that we're likely to be um, subject to. Well, the funding came from Bloodboard and Forest. That's um, right, and still does. You know, it's been continued. It started because of HIV and it's been continued because of hepatitis C. Fortunately, the naloxone program is actually inter intervening in that uh, sense of uh, ownership, if you like, of opioid overdose or of opioid use in the community. And look how successful it's been. Yeah. At, yeah, and the discussions about things like safe injecting rooms making a difference, but yep. also, you know, people are still very afraid of um, being seen to be positively engaged or positively supportive. Of something, and I, you know, have spoken to members of the armed forces, for instance, and said, "So, you know, what are you doing about drug use in, uh, you know, in the army or in the navy or in the air force?" And really, member of the navy that I spoke to said, oh, "We don't have any drug use in the navy." Mm. I mean, you know, I said, "Well, what do you think alcohol use is?" Yeah, well, that's yeah, but there are no problems with yeah. it, and so it's well, legal. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's just crazy. All right, let's go to the song and then we'll come back with a, a very good piece uh, entitled New Efforts to Make Top-Level Policy and Research Actually Welcome Drug Users. A good piece. Mm, All right, uh, this is going back uh, to the days when I was a youngster and going to see blues, Australian blues bands and this is Chain Black and Blue. Uh, that takes me back, uh, Marion. Yeah. Band Chain, Phil Manning, Matt Taylor, Black and Blue. All right, uh, the time is 17 minutes after 11, and you're with Jeff and Marion in Studio One at 2XX, Canberra's Community Radio, listening to News from the Drug War Front. And we've got a piece by Brooke Nolan from filtermag.org, uh, New Efforts to Make Top-Level Policy and Research Actually Welcome Drug Users. What a thought. Mm. Uh, an oft-cited mantra, quote, nothing about us without us, suggests the involvement of people who use drugs in drug research and policymaking is essential. This is not only true from an ethical standpoint, but also in terms of effectiveness and logistics. In the drug policy and drug user health realms, people with lived experience offer invaluable insights and, tr and trusted access to the community. Both of these are integral to the work. Yet despite this, the involvement of people who use drugs is often last minute, tokenistic, or even harmful to those who put their hand up. If anyone understands the importance of doing it better, it's Amy Madden. 
Located in Sydney, Australia, Annie Madden is currently completing her PhD at the Centre for Social Research in Health at the University of New South Wales. Her PhD looks at, quote, drug user representation in high-level high level drug policy settings, end quote, from the perspectives of those who do this work and those who work with them. I've been that person. I know what it's like and I know what it takes. Madden refers to herself as a global drug user activist and her past career backs that up. Her PhD follows 16 years as CEO of ABLE, the Australian Injecting and Illicit Drug Users League, along with senior roles in organisations including NEWA, the New South Wales Users and AIDS Association. Her days in drug user activism can be traced back to the late 1980s at University in Queensland, where, as an injecting drug user herself, she saw the advent of HIV AIDS, which we were talking about before, Marion, yep. and helped found one of Australia's first peer-based drug user uh, organisations and syringe programs. Mm. She was later awarded the Order of Australia for Distinguished Service to Community Health Policy and Advocacy. Mm, that was, she started with Quiver and got that done. Order of Australia, what, two years ago now, I think it was. Anyway, the article goes on, quote, there's some research around consumer participation in drug treatment or recovery setting, things like that, but nothing that looks at a high level, Madden told Filter of her move to academia. Quote, people who use drugs have been in these really high-level policy spaces for decades, but no one really knows anything about it. By high level, she means things like ministerial committees, parliamentary inquiries, drug summits and settings in the UN Commission on Narcotic Drugs, CND. She's completed a 30-year review of these types of events alongside interviewing people globally on what these environments are like for directly impacted people. Quote, I wanted to know what happens to drug user representatives in those environments, she said what it's like to be that person at the table, to be the single person with lived experience on a large, highly credentialed committee. Applying critical feminist and post-structuralist theories, Madden hopes to avoid the type of academic work that sits in a drawer and instead creates something that's accessible and usable. The aim is to help people with lived experience to not only continue to get a seat at the table, but to thrive there. Quote, I'm not pretending to have some objective viewpoint here either, Madden said. I've been that person. I know what it's like and I know what it takes. Perhaps, not surprisingly, her research, which will be finished early next year, has exposed a troubling environment. There are overtly discriminatory and stigmatising behaviours, but also those that are not conscious, which in many ways, those that are not conscious, which in many ways makes them harder to tackle. Things like the uh, location of events, given that it can be difficult for people who use drugs to travel, can be a barrier. But even the more, but the more harmful moments are those that those subconscious attitudes. As Madden put put it, I've never been so politely fucked over in my whole life. What a classic quote that is. It is. That's a good one, Annie. Uh, look, it takes a lot of bravery to enter these environments as someone who uses drugs. Yet for some people, being the voice of their community is worth all the pressures. A new mentor, mentorship program from INCHU, the International Network on Health and Hepatitis in Substance Users, and INPUD, the International Network of People Who Use Drugs, hopes to encourage others to do the same. 
Last month, the Jude Byrne Emerging Female Leader Award was launched at the 9th International Conference on Health and Hepatitis Care in Substance Users, or INSU 2021, in honour of global drug user activist Jude Byrne, who sadly passed away uh, early in 2021, March the 5th to be precise. Mm. Two mentorships will be awarded to activists with lived experience who identify as women. And Judy Chang, Executive Director of Input, uh, based, which is based in London, is quoted as saying, Jude Byrne was instrumental to the drug user rights movement. She helped to found Input, was a mentor figure to a lot of people who use drugs, and was instrumental in bringing people to the movement and inspiring them, end quote. Whilst there has been a lot of informal mentorship within the drug user activism movement, as far as anyone knows, this is the first formal program to assist people who use drugs to gain the skills, knowledge and support to thrive at whatever level they aspire to, local, national or international. And Judy Chang is quoted again, there are a lot of unique stresses to being a leader within this movement, which has led to a realisation globally that we need to build resilience. It shouldn't just be a few key people. Devastatingly, a lot of activists that people looked up to have also died due to the overdose crises or the impacts of criminalisation. Mm. The nine-month mentor program hopes to build the next generation of leaders and will be very flexible. Award recipients will be able to choose what area to specialise in, such as research, advocacy, community mobilisation, or anything else they might want to focus on. Chang, who has lived experience as well as an extensive history of leadership roles in drug user organisations, has for many years advocated for people who use drugs to take active roles in research policy and advocacy. The mentorship program is the antithesis to what she has seen happen time and again in line with Madden's research the tokenisation of people who use drugs in these environments. We can only hope that opportunities like this and research like Madden's will increase momentum toward people who use drugs having a deeper impact on the research and policies that shape their future. Until then, Chang, Madden and others have some practical advice for researchers and project managers. Quote, we want to see people who use drugs there from the very beginning, Chang explained. We want to see them in the research design phase all the way to the writing and publishing. She added that while this could require some capacity building along the way, the pros far outweigh the cons. Quote, you need to plan to assign more budget and more resources from the very beginning. You need to put this effort in to take people on that journey because otherwise it's always just going to be a tick box activity. Brooke is the marketing manager at the International Network on Health and Hepatitis in Substance Users, INSU, an organisation that brings together community members, clinicians, researchers, advocates and more to fight for equitable health care for people who use drugs. INSU offers free membership to people with lived experience of hepatitis and or HIV and or drug use. Brooke lives in the Blue Mountains of Blue, of New South Wales, Australia. I think that's an excellent piece, uh, Marion. It is a good piece, yeah. And also reflects my experience of the difficulty of um, the drug using community interacting with a lot of the researcher community. You know, like when they've got 
Well, Jeffrey, you know, remember when we were talking, you brought um, to me the brought to the show Inpud's report and the um, human rights, you know, the expression of human rights that uh, drug users are entitled to, and I personally was surprised that I would be entitled <laughs> to a set of human rights, as a drug user would yeah. be entitled to a well, set of human be. rights, not just as a p- p- yeah, human, human being. being. Yeah. But it, you know, it makes perfect sense um, that, of course, we should be. But, yeah, from, you know, 1984 at that time as an ex-drug user and then, you know, 1994 reverting back to, you know, current... Um, what current, what do I call it, career um, position. It just is an... In, I was never, ever at any stage considered a representative of drug users. Um, and while at that stage I wasn't a drug user, I certainly had lived experience mm-hmm. of drug use. And I remember, in fact, Jude was one of the few people who used to ask the pertinent questions and not be taken notice of. But in fact, it was the important questions like, have we tried that when we were doing, remember, the three by three by three, how to clean a syringe because not everybody had access to clean equipment, injecting equipment. And Jude said, yeah, but have we tested it? Well, in fact, no, it had never been tested. It was just a suggestion for a member of the the AIDS committee, the National HIV and AIDS committee. And uh, one of the scientists said, well, why don't we try this, three by three by three? And that then became the mantra until needle and syringe exchange programs were introduced. So, yeah, I mean, really important stuff that is uh, being overlooked because the nothing without about us without us was being ignored. Yeah, and the, the low status with which illicit drug uses are People just were not... A, not Respected. Yeah, lack of no respect. respect. Yeah. No, yeah. That, that's, a good, that's a good way to express yeah. it. All right, um, look, I found uh, the track that I originally said we were <laughs> going to play uh, from St Kilda to King's Cross, so let's give it another go. This is Paul Kelly. Okay. <laughs> Kelly. Um, it was Paul Kelly, very obviously Paul Kelly. It sounds so much like him. Unlike Split Ends, which sounds nothing like Paul Kelly. <laughs> and in fact, we're a New Zealand band, even though this is still Australian Music Month, yes. which is why we're playing so much Australian music. <laughs> Although we sort of claimed them, didn't we, Split Ends? Yeah, yeah, and I think they've claimed us too in a lot of ways, although they have often gone back to live there. One of the things we sort of have missed, although, and it isn't actually part of the script, is um, that there's an opioid agonist treatment shortage in Lebanon, and we did talk quite a bit about um, the naloxone program um, that Dave sponsor has been running, Dave and Damo have been running in Canberra. But it's uh, really important because many places actually refuse to accept the fact that they have um, opioid users, but that there isn't any naloxone in uh uh, Lebanon is really important, and it's well, an even article. worse, they're running out of methadone and buprenorphine. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just horrendous, and not even caring about it, which is just. Uh... Maybe we'll quickly read that one, Mass. It's it's entitled "Opioid Agonist Treatment Shortage in Lebanon: Call for Support" by Istvan Gabor Takax, who's part of the Drug Reporter um, 
organisation based in Hungary, but they do a lot of videos and uh, yes. interviews about... and they've done one about... done an, a video about this. They too, have? Apparently, yeah. And it says, uh, OAT, or Opioid Agonist Treatment, was legalised and launched in Lebanon in 2012 within the harm reduction program after years of advocacy from harm reduction actors in the country. In light of the compounding and ongoing crises that have hit Lebanon since 2019, we all saw that massive explosion that hit the, yes, the, the port. Uh, today, organisations are facing the risk of yet another health crisis with the imminent shortage of opioid agonist treatment medication. Organisations providing the treatment in Lebanon have learnt of the upcoming shortage of opioid agonist treatment medications, which leaves the lives of over 1,200 individuals hanging in the balance. Well, and so they acknowledge there's 1,200 at least people. So that's, yeah. it's not yeah, a small number of people. And no, a, it's not. And a link then, then to it says, the video. The video. Yeah. Yeah. According to the Ministry of Public Health, or MOF, in Lebanon until date, uh, to date, uh, 2,438 uh, 2, patients are registered in the program. However, from this number, approximately 1,200 to 1,300 patients are active on treatment and receive their medications on a weekly basis from centres accredited by the uh, Ministry of Public Health. Substitution drugs require import authorisation from the narcotics department and export authorisation from France. And this progress, a process usually necessitates 45 days following approvals. Since the approval of the Bank of Lebanon was not issued to date, the problem of shortage is definite. As a result, this will expose patients to abrupt discontinuation, withdrawal, overdoses and the high possibility or possibly will high risky behaviour and criminality. The government's economic situation is the leading cause of this situation of this shortage. The procurement process is lengthy as the approval through the central bank and other administrative procedures will take ages. At the same time the working NGOs are doing their best to get donations as soon as possible in order to cover the period of shortage. If these two medications used for OAT in Lebanon or opioid um, uh, treatment, will, uh, opioid, yeah, antagonist treatment uh, in Lebanon will be out of stock in three weeks. And this is dated November the 19th, so three weeks from then. Active beneficiaries are in danger. The only solution that can help at this stage is medication by donation, as the ground is already prepared for transferring that medication. The WHO can receive the medication and the Ministry of Health will give the clearance within hours, as promised, to get the medication from customs. NGOs and experts consider this situation an emergency because they are not sure that the programs can be saved after the interruptions happen. Well, that just sent a chill down my spine when I... Um... It's frightening, Jeffrey. Look, I remember, and I remember telling you this too, we donated $1,000 worth of needles and syringes to the New York um, Volunteer Needle and Syringe wow. Handing Out Program when I was working at the Geographer on Information, which is now Directions. Um, and I got our management committee to um, authorise $1,000 American... To, because they could buy uh, the units over there for something like seven cents. 
right. at the time. So cents a lot unit. of And equipment. here they were like 35 cents a unit. Yeah. So it was much more sensible to actually buy them over there. So we gave it to the New York program via uh, the Washington State program, the one in, um, up in Seattle. So anyway, it's just, it's not hard to do. If WHO have um, agreed to provide the, um, the naloxone and to facilitate the availability of the treatments, then I think people should think seriously about, donation, about donating to that. Well, otherwise, the prospects facing people who are on methadone or buprenorphine. I mean, that's that's impending. Withdrawing Jeffrey, off methadone is far worse than coming be, off heroin. That's by Christmas. Yeah. Imagine what they're going to be like at Christmas time. It's a it's, mess. It's a crisis. All right, um, I'll play another track and then we'll uh, talk about a very uh, positive story about New Zealand permanently legalising drug checking. Indeed. This is Radio Birdman and Aloha Steve and Dano. Uh, oops, another uh, incorrect um, CD. That's what happens when you take a fortnight, a week off, Jeffrey. Yeah, get, get out of practice. <laughs> you get, get unused to it. I guess it was called Before Too Long. <laughs> I guess it was, yeah. <laughs> All right, look, at least we have a really positive story to um, finish out the show. Uh, it's from filtermag.org, November the 24th, by Alexander Lechtman. New Zealand permanently legalises drug checking, a global first. Yay. Yay, good on New Zealand. New Zealand permanently legalised drug checking on November the 23rd by passing a bill to let a pilot program performing the harm reduction service at festivals continue and expand its operations. The new law will take effect from December the 6th. New Zealand is the first country to explicitly legalise and subsequently facilitate drug checking. The pilot program, first approved in December 2020, was set to expire in December 2021. In April, the Ministry of Health had recommended making the pilot program permanent, which led to plans for the new legislation. Data showed that 68% of participants changed their behaviour as a result of accessing the service, and 87% said they better understood the harms of drug use after talking with people performing it. Quote, there's still plenty of work still to do, said Wendy Allison, director of Know Your Stuff NZ, a volunteer drug checking organisation appointed by the Ministry of Health to run the pilot. But this feels like quite an achievement. We've been working hard towards this for seven years, and so many people have worked so hard to get us to this point. Today, we're celebrating our success, end quote. Prior to the pilot program, New Zealand drug checkers had done much the same work, but without any legal protections. Mm. Many businesses were scared away from working with them, which limited their services. Yeah, good on them. The New Zealand Bill installs broad, broad legal protections for people offering the service and for people accessing it. In many countries, including the United States, drug checking inhabits a legal grey area. This means volunteers who perform the work do so at risk of being criminally prosecuted. Other countries, such as the Netherlands, have services that are government sanctioned. But the New Zealand Bill installs broad legal protections for people offering the service and for people accessing it. It does not legalise possession, buying or selling of drugs. Lawmakers essentially approved the bill as originally written, while repealing the provisions that made it only temporary. If a musical, music festival or other place of business chooses, it can host drug checking on site. As service 
uh, a service provider will offer, quote, information and harm reduction advice to help individuals make informed decisions about, uh, about drug and psychoactive substance use. The Ministry of Health will publish, publish a full list of available providers. For the types of drugs often associated with festivals, like MDMA, drug checking typically involves testing samples with chemical reagent kits, which are relatively accessible and inexpensive. Know Your Stuff NZ performs its services using reagent kits or a Fourier transform infrared spectrometer, depending on the location. Upon receiving the results, drug users decide for themselves whether they wish to keep or dispose of their sample or, in certain settings, where it's an option, submit it for further lab testing. Drug checkers are forbidden from collecting any personal information on people who accept the services, which is a good thing to hear. No one involved can be criminally charged with possession, nor can the results be used in any later criminal proceedings. Employees and volunteers of these services are protected from liability, quote, unless it's shown that they acted in bad faith or without reasonable care. This is to shield them from legal repercussions if someone got a drug tested, used it and experienced harms or death. Since drug checking isn't 100% accurate, there's always a risk. But risks are hugely reduced if people know what's in their drugs before they decide whether to use. Oh, it's like That's really day. important. Yeah. 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 I mean, you, the difference between a, a full black market and this yes. sort of service. Yeah, I, look, it just makes fundamental sense to check. But also I'm glad that they protect people from... Because no matter what you do, no matter what advice you give people, you are leaving it up to them to make the decision to take it or not. That's right. So to, to protect the drug checkers from liability if people actually take the drug once they've been told what's in it is really important. Yep. I'm pleased to hear that's there. But and something that we should take notice of in Canberra because... You know, we're looking to get that done here too, aren't we? Well, the trials that were held um, indicated that people who were told there were toxic um, additives... It threw them away. Threw them away. Yeah. People want to have a good time. They don't want to end up in an ambulance or worse. That's right. I mean, it's just a, well, not only is it a waste of the money, cost of their drugs, but a waste of the cost of their ticket for the concert, yeah? Indeed. Look, I might try again. Um, hope it's third time lucky with uh, Radio Birdman. I really did want um, not. Pre am I not pretty enough by Casey Chambers? Next but anyway. week for sure, man. Next week for sure. <laughs> well, next week's no longer Oz Music Week. <laughs> ah, well, that means we can't play it. That's true. Aloha, Stephen Dano. Thank goodness that was Radio Birdman with the low heart Steve and Dan. Well done, Jeffrey. We've got time for a not so positive story at this stage. Yeah, Chris. the injecting room. It's a national song. No sign of report as council yet to receive assurances. This is by David Shout from uh, CBDnews.com from November the 24th. Um, a report that will recommend the CBD location of Victoria's safe, second safe injecting room will likely be pushed back into 2022, representing a delay of more than 12 months. The report by former Police Commissioner Ken Lay 
was originally due by the end of 2020, but it's been delayed several times. Mr Lay told the City of Melbourne in May his report to the State Government would likely be completed in 8 to 12 weeks, and the Government had also committed to a release by the end of the year. But the State has since steered clear of committing to that timeline. The report is significant in, um, as it will recommend the CBD site most appropriate for Victoria's second supervised injecting room. After a 2020 expert panel declared that the state's first site in North Richmond required help dealing with the demand, meaning that there were too many people for what they were doing. Um, no decision has been made regarding the final location for the medically supervised, uh, supervised injecting room, a government spokesperson told the CBD News in November. Quote, with around one person a month dying from heroin overdose in the city of Melbourne, there's a real and growing need for a community health and wellbeing hub. A second supervised injecting service will save lives and change lives. End quote. It's strongly suspected that the former Urella building on 244 Flinders Street, which the government purchased earlier this year, was the new preferred site for the new supervised injecting facility, although this was yet to be confirmed. The government said Mr Lay's report has been delayed due to COVID-19, which limited consultation with stakeholders. don't know why it can't do that by... Um, Zoom names, or, yeah. you know, over the computer. Yeah. More significant, however, is that the government scrapped its preferred injecting site more than six months into the former police commissioner's consultation. That facility, Community Health Centre Co-Health in Victoria Street, was subject to strong pushback from the council due to its proximity to vulnerable residents and the Queen Victoria market. It's always NIMBY, not in my back garden. Backyard. Yeah, yeah. NIMBY, NIMBY, NIMBY. On May the 26th this year, Council has voted 7-4 to four to affirm its support for the Government to house the state's second safe injecting room within the Central Business District. In the most passionate debate at Town Hall in years, a motion by Councillor Rashina Campbell to outright reject the facility was also defeated. However, it's since emerged that assurances sought by the Council that might not have been uh, that might not have been met by the state government. Councillors requested the Lord Mayor write to the Health Minister to seek an ongoing and formal commitment from the government that regardless of the injecting room location, there would be, quote, no impact on amenity to surrounding residents, businesses and other visitors, and that impacted residents and traders are invited to participate in an ongoing consultation process with the government. It's understood these assurances have not been met. So it sounds to me, Marion, that the state government is what, dragging the heels or don't... Well, it sounds very much like they've, um, they've had a bit of pushback originally. And it just, it seems crazy when that if they're talking about it, still having... Why they think is going to make any difference having a local, one localised site as opposed to a multiplicity of areas where people go to wake up in the alleyways of Melbourne, what difference... Or down by the river, down by the Yarra, why is that going to make a difference? Having a community hub or a centre where people go, they're not going to hang around outside no. and look stoned or be stoned or sell drugs. It just doesn't work like that. Why are they behaving like this? It sounds like it's just pushback and they must be getting too close to an election. 
Oh, there's one room where yeah. that was part of the, the story, I too. I have a snake suspicion. Thing like this, it sounds like it's just pushback. Which, too, actually. It does, and I have to say that Kevin Andrews has actually shown an awful lot of... Dan. Dan Andrews, I do that every time, don't I, poor guy? Well, I'm mucking up the CDs. Total you muck up the politicians. <laughs> the other side of politics, do I, my dad? How wrong can I be? Yeah. Sorry, Dan. He'd be against it, Kevin Andrews. Yeah. 100%. But anyway, look, let's hope the, the Victorian government is still committed yeah, to a second. and I'm so sorry to hear that for all you users in Victoria, in Melbourne in particular. I remember it was in a huge difficulty. Getting on was a breeze, yeah, finding somewhere to have a whack a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah. All right, that takes us out from another episode of News on the Drug Warfront. Hope we've um, covered some mm, stories yes, of interest. Yes, it's so nice to have you back, Jeffrey. Nice to be and back. And I'm glad to hear that you're well again. And... Everybody have a lovely day. Go and enjoy the sunshine. It's going to be 26 degrees, Indeed. my dears. Make the most of it. We'll leave you, as ever, with our theme song for Yay. the show, Golden Brown Bob's We Spanks. hope. <laughs> oh, yeah. I won't guarantee it, but hopefully. Bye for now. Bye.